Kisat Podcast Network. In episode 10, Paul and Amy explore the MI spirit and resisting the writing reflex. For episode resources, contact us and other information, please visit the Lions and Tigers and Bears MI website at nfartech.org forward slash MI podcast. That's N-F-A-R-T-E-C dot org forward slash M-I podcast. Lions and Tigers and Bears, M-I an interactive podcast focused on the evidence-based practice of motivational interviewing, a method of communication that guides toward behavior change while honoring autonomy. I'm Amy Shanahan. And I'm Paul Warren. And we've worked together over the past 10 years. We've been facilitating MI learning collaboratives and providing trainings and coaching sessions focused on the adoption and refinement of MI. We're also members of the Motivational Interviewing Network of Trainers. Join us in this adventure into the forest where we explore and get curious about what lies behind the curtain of MI. Hello, Paul. Hello, Amy. Good to be back talking to you on Lions and Tigers and Bears. Agreed. I'm looking forward to this conversation. And the topic we're focusing on today is pushing for change, MI spirit, and the writing reflex. Mm. Lots of, lots of things to consider. I'm Mm. curious too about pushing for change. Do we want to do that? Do we do that? Yeah. It's, it's funny because I wonder if we feel the push to push for change <laughs> in, in terms of, you know, we get into the helping professions for a lot of different reasons and, uh, you know, we open ourselves up to what participants and clients and peers and patients are telling us. And, you know, we have feelings about that and we want to help. We want to, maybe solve, fix, save, rescue. Offer some resources and advice. Yeah. 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 That's what we were trained to do. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's a human instinct or impulse to, if you see somebody in need of a particular resource or in particular kind of pain, you know, some people are really feel the push or feel compelled to want to to want to solve fix rescue the problem yeah it's part of the compassion that we have mm-hmm. that desire to want to do something to help someone hopefully out of their suffering or pain or struggle mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And again, as we talk about this and we talk about this in relation to motivational interviewing, I think it's important for us to kind of normalize and for us to sort of say to folks who may be listening to this conversation, because you you feel that push doesn't mean you're doing something wrong. It's it's normal to feel that it's human. Um, and not that you needed us to tell you that, but, um, you know, starting off with kind of normalizing that impulse. Yeah. And we're going to explore ways that we can go about managing that, dealing with that in an effective, more effective way, more am I consistent way, of course, because this is about motivational interviewing. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And how we can lean in and mm-hmm. collaborate with a person and not necessarily push our agenda on them or our desire maybe to fix or change or 
advise. <laughs> yeah. And really, I think another way of kind of like summarizing that in a very simple way is, is simply saying that, you know, motivational interviewing offers specific guidance about how we can put that impulse to work and like you were saying, still respect somebody's autonomy. So ultimately we can care better or we can care more effectively mm-hmm. and not let that impulse, which, you know, I think maybe drum roll, please, mm-hmm. uh, which is often referred to as drum the roll. right, the, no, the writing, right, the writing reflex. Yes. 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 Yeah. I thought yeah. you wanted me to drum for change out of the blue. Oh, <laughs> uh, no, no. No need to do that. No need to do that. Well, I'm really glad that you highlighted caring better. That's that's really a nice way to think about it because it's hopefully mostly from our heart that we have that desire to want to help someone. And there's a way that we can care better in a in that with the spirit in mind of partnering and collaborating mm-hmm. and honoring someone's autonomy because they're the expert of themselves and how they want to make a change, if mm. at all. <laughs> so maybe it would be helpful to move our conversation, given that we've hopefully normalized that impulse, mm-hmm. to maybe a specific focus on MI spirit. And, you know, I'm wondering, I'll just say for myself that this conceptually was kind of a more difficult concept for me to wrap my head around um, as I was being exposed to motivational interviewing, um, you know, am I spirit? What, you know, what the heck is that? So I'm wondering what your, what your thought is about that and, you know, where you are with that today. Cause I, I feel like I have a much deeper understanding now. Yeah. I, I, I think I'm on the same page as you, if I'm understanding correctly, and certainly you can add your experience as well, uh, that it was this something esoteric thing that you couldn't define or put your, that intuition of spirit, you know, I, I have it. And I think I thought I had it coming out of the gate in my career as a counselor. I hear people talk about I'm doing MI and sometimes think it has to do with that person centeredness and something around that. Right. So it took Mm -hmm. me a while to understand it and articulate it. And it comes easier and easier. The more you teach, the more you learn and the more you (laughs) bring it into your heart set. Um, And I wish that I could come up with a specific point in time when I could say, Oh, this is it. This is when I got it. Mm. It's just been an evolution for me of practice. And I don't, I think it's unlearning some things, relearning some things, Mm -hmm. getting out of the way. I think the biggest part for me around the MI spirit was intellectually when I understood the acronym of the spirit, which we know is partnership acceptance, which has a lot into it more than just acceptance we could have two or three PowerPoint slides on acceptance because it's pretty deep Mm -hmm. compassion and evocation. So pace partnership, acceptance, compassion, and evocation. Um, It, it, I could get it intellectually. Mm -hmm. And I think that there were aspects that didn't always connect in my heart. And, and I'll give you an example. Mm. I, I feel very vulnerable, even just thinking about saying it, that, I think there were times that I didn't believe that people had it within them to change. I think I believe some people did and others didn't. I think 
that I had this thought maybe at times for maybe some of the other aspects that there were some people that reacted better to me telling them, guiding them in a less guiding way, in a more directing way Mm -hmm. um, when people responded to that. So I wasn't partnering as much. So I, I didn't really embrace the spirit completely, if that makes sense. So I almost compartmentalized it based on what I thought about a person, if you will. Mm. (laughs) And the more, the more I practiced and the more I learned from the people that I served, the more I realized that everyone has it in them. Everybody is the expert of themselves. Even young people are really smart about what they want to do or what they don't want to do and how they want to go about it. And, you know, I used to pick certain people or groups and think, no, I don't know. So I think my curiosity, uh, curiosity killed the cat. (laughs) And I, I bought into it more and more as the more experience I had. Mm. What about you? Yeah. You know, I, I think the thing that has helped me the most with it, because again, I think I intellectualized it on some level. Um, and this is something that I, I really try and discuss uh, and really invite people to think about and work on in trainings is that to me, am I spirit? And again, you went over the acronym PACE really gives me specific guidance about the state of me when I'm in the company of that other person. And meaning that it gives me guidance about how I want to position myself to interact with this person. It gives me guidance about how I want to prioritize this person's uh, autonomy, this person's idea. uh, And to be able to do that from a place of compassion that, yes, as the worker, I may have an agenda, but compassion is helping me to prioritize the person I have the opportunity to work with to prioritize their agenda. And, and that doesn't mean we don't have a collaborative agenda. It just means that I'm, I'm very clear that I'm holding on to the idea that I'm interacting with them in a compassionate way. And then, of course, the evocation really reminds me that, like you were saying, they have it in them. And my role when I'm practicing motivational interviewing and acting in an MI spirited way is to draw it out from them as opposed to trying to put my best idea in. You know, I was thinking as you were talking, another aspect of maybe teaching and learning, I remember entering the forest with you and and our colleagues early on and and exploring the training material. And I wonder if you recall, and maybe maybe we could offer this to the listeners, one thing that stood out to me, I love when there's a compare and a contrast because it helped me to visualize and understand what the opposite would look like. So the opposite of partnership we would talk about is more of self-interest or in, in what you said kind of sparked that for me that it's not putting your agenda on the table necessarily as a priority. It doesn't mean you don't have something to offer uh, when, when it's time and when it's appropriate and when you've been given permission to do so. So the opposite of partnering is more about your, your own interest, your own self-interest as the worker. Mm-hmm. Right. So, and I think about this early on in my career as a counselor, I wanted to do good. I wanted to be good. I wanted to uh, have success in the, in helping people. So I went more through a menu of things. And so it was hard to get out of my own way because of that desire. Like, so I, I had my own self-interest that maybe was more prominent 
than it could have been from an MI consistent perspective. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm going to, I'm going to throw this idea out and tell me if I'm kind of capturing what you just said, which is that as your understanding and your practice of MI spirit increased, you were able to not necessarily keep centering yourself in the conversation. You were able to really, uh, deprioritize your need to be good, your need to accomplish your agenda and really be with that person in a compassionate, curious way in that moment. Right. Yeah. It took a while for me to gain my wings, if you will, to be okay without the net or without having that agenda of, and anticipation for what I was supposed to be doing. Mm. You know, it it makes me think that, and it's funny, I wonder what your thought is about this, but it makes me think that, you know, this is where taking the risk to do, you know, even a practice audio recording with somebody can be really helpful because, you know, MI spirit is, it's, it's, there's nothing ephemeral about it. There's nothing mysterious about it. It's actually actionable as the worker. You can choose to position yourself as a partner. You can choose to accept, and maybe we should break down what the four A's are that go under acceptance, mm-hmm. but you can make, you can make choices about how you're going to interact. And in an audio recording, you can actually hear that. Yes. You can, you can hear MI spirit in the conversation or, or the lack thereof. Um, and, you know, I, I can, I can say for myself as an example, that the more I've practiced motivational interviewing, trained it and talked about it. Um, I think, the more MI spirit I've been able to actually bring to conversations. Yes. I was thinking about coaching someone who worked with uh, homeless people um, predominantly in his work. And I, he recorded a tape for me to listen to. So on that notion of acceptance, the A part of pace, uh, I was thinking about the, clear opposite might be judgment. Right. Mm. And he and I listened to his tape together. I asked him what part of the tape did he want to listen to? And he listened in and I, it was, it was just interesting to be in that space of thinking in my head, I have a judgment an opinion about what was just happening. And I had to suspend that judgment. So I was, hopefully modeling to him and asking him, what did he think? And luckily that happened because he said, well, I don't think that I really had the spirit there. And I said, tell me what you heard or didn't hear that makes you think that. And he said, well, I was noticing the tone of my voice. And I know that this particular person, I was really frustrated with them. I was judging them. And he explained it and I won't get into the details, which are irrelevant really that because he was judging the person and frustrated with the person. And he said that he was having a hard time getting out of the way uh, and being able to help. And it was such a powerful experience to a remove my own judgment because I heard and saw the same thing or heard the same thing in the tape. And that knowing, and so it further like validates for me that Mm. he had it within him too. I didn't have to teach him that I heard Mm -hmm. it and he didn't. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And, um, and what a relief. I mean, we talk about motivational interviewing, actually decompressing and minimizing maybe some of our feelings of burning out because we don't take the responsibility of fixing someone. And it was such a relief to not have to worry about telling him what I heard because Mm -hmm. he heard it. 
mm-hmm. he knew it was there. Yeah. And you invited him to reflect on it. And I think the important thing I wanted, the point I wanted to make uh, is, and that I suspended my judgment. It's not Mm -hmm. that it doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. I just suspended it. I know we talked in further episodes or previous episodes about me wearing a rubber band on my wrist. (laughs) And my mentor told me anytime I had a judgment to like kind of give myself a little whack. <laughs> so meaning I remember that, that well, <laughs> we have thoughts and judgments about things good or bad. And, and just really solidifying that, that practice of suspending and not sharing it in that moment. Mm-hmm. And if I had chosen to do so, I would have done so with permission mm. and mm-hmm. in a very mindful, kind way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, which again would be consistent with MI spirit. Right. Yeah, so that was a maybe a more detailed expression of the acceptance piece and and also navigating the opposite. When when you have the judgment, what can you do with it? Mm. I think one of the things that I like most about the acceptance part of MI spirit and this also really helps me guides me as to how I want to be when I'm in the moment with the person is the piece about accurate empathy. And for me, I take that to mean that it is my job when I'm practicing motivational interviewing to really try and understand the experience and the perspective and accurately empathize with that of the person that I happen to be in that conversation with. And that, that one A of the four A's really gives me the permission to suspend whatever my thought may be, because my goal is to understand. I'm often curious. I'm smiling, not that others can see me, but (laughs) I'm smiling. And I've asked several of my mentors this question, and I may have asked this for you, but it would be great to get it on recording and invite the audience to think about it. How would they answer it? What's, What's inaccurate empathy? So if I'm talking about the opposites of the pace, the spirit aspects, and I think about accurate empathy, it would help. It helps me to clarify what's inaccurate empathy. If I were being empathic and it was inaccurate, what is that about for you? What do you think? I I like the question and I like it because you said I'm being empathic and maybe I'm inaccurate. Mm -hmm. And of course it's, it's not, Motivational interviewing is not necessarily about getting it right. Mm -hmm. It is about attempting to understand and acting on what you think that understanding may be. And if it's quote unquote inaccurate, hopefully you have enough rapport. There's enough partnership in the conversation that you'll get, um, you'll get feedback and you'll get clarity as you know, a, a deeper understanding or a more accurate understanding of the person's experience. Um, so I think being inaccurate in what we may understand, as long as we're committed to seeking to understand. So I, I don't think it's so much about that it quote unquote has to be accurate. We do have to actively seek to understand though. Something just popped into my head about empathy. I listened to a woman talk about the aspects of empathy, which I never really dove into it. And it helped me in this frame where she talked about cognitive empathy. So she first told a piece of her story and asked us to think about, literally underlined, think about what she might have experienced. 
and we went into small breakouts and we came back and we talked about what our thoughts were about it. And then she deepened her story. And then she asked us to imagine what the feeling was, what were we feeling when we were hearing her tell the story and what did we, what did we anticipate her feelings might've been and talked about the emotional aspects of empathy. And, and I wondered too, like, wow, am I stuck in my head sometimes Mm -hmm. trying to think Mm -hmm. about what the person is talking about? Mm -hmm. And it helped me to really connect the, heart set and the mindset where that mm-hmm. we talk about it, around empathy. And mm. sometimes if I'm just thinking about it, maybe cognitively, the cognitive part of empathy, maybe I'm more, more or less not so accurate. If I'm not understanding enough yet, I don't know enough yet. I'm not leaning in enough to the emotion. Cause it's, as we know, Brene Brown says it's a vulnerable place Mm. to go to the emotional part. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and ultimately, you know, one of the wonderful things about motivational interviewing is that it really invites us to seek to understand on that cognitive as well as emotional level. And, you know, I, as I say that, I can't help but think of, you know, one of the tools we have, which is a complex reflection. And, you know, oftentimes complex reflections are related to affect and they're related to affect that we may have a hunch is there. So that's being open on that emotional empathy sort of plane. So Paul, we continue to explore the other two pieces of pace, compassion and evocation. Mm-hmm. What do you think the opposite or what did we used to talk about the opposite of compassion is if compassion is suffering with or responding to the desire to want to help someone out of their suffering? What do you think the opposite of that would be? The first word that popped into my head when you said that was indifference. Oh, yeah. You know, so, so focused on oneself that one is indifferent to the other. Mm. that that to me might be the opposite yeah that's that's a good one just not even having that connection to the heart of it and wanting to understand and help someone out of that whatever suffering or space that they're in Mm -hmm. almost like not caring Mm -hmm. yeah yeah Evocation to me is the interesting thing when we think about the well, and we usually use a picture of a well in our slides. Sometimes when we talk about evocation, that depicts that there's a lot in there that the person across from you has information that we want to draw out of the well. Um, So the opposite is (laughs) thinking that we're pouring information and education in and to me, the E, the opposite of E, evocation to me is about that education and really highlights this notion of pushing mm-hmm. the push kind of thing about our title. Yeah. Because with good intention, we care, hopefully. Mm-hmm. Um, and we want to give people information thinking it makes them better. I mean, come on, didn't you know smoking was bad for you? <laughs> Yeah, I, I read it on the carton and the billboard signs and see it on TV. Of course, I know that it's bad for me. Mm-hmm. And and yet our health systems and our and a lot of the workers in our healthcare system still can beat our heads up on the against the wall offering these warnings and threaten threaten threats not to threaten, but didn't you know that's not good for you? <laughs> Mm-hmm. And I think you're right. I think people do know. I, I, I wonder if if sometimes the the pushing comes from, and I'm going to use a word that I used earlier. If it comes from sort of uh, the desire to position oneself as the expert, because you know the expert wants some experts, I I don't want to say all, I don't want to paint that with a a broad brush, but some experts want to impart 
what they know. They want to install what they know. And, you know, again, I think one of the things that's so powerful about motivational interviewing, and it speaks to the P of MI spirit, the partnership, is that, you know, it's two experts and they're collaboratively working together. So, you know, perhaps the the opposite of the evocation is the desire to be the expert. Right. I often tell the dentist story. I think I alluded to it in one of our episodes, but never told the whole story. Can I tell my dentist story? I think it sure. kind of highlights some of the aspects of the opposite. And I'll, I'll tell the story in a, in a room uh, of folks learning about motivational interviewing and asking them to identify parts of the pace and or the opposite and pay attention to what things they heard in the story. So I went to this dentist uh, for years. I went to this dentist for years and I went one day and the dentist wasn't there. It was a new person. And she um, swung her seat around. She was at my level. She shook my hand, introduced herself, kindly said hello, proceeded to look at my x-rays and said, one of the first things she said was, well, wow, your nose looks better in person than it does on the x-ray. And I was like, oh my gosh, I was like feeling my nose thinking. That's part, one of one of the parts of my body that I actually don't mind. I like my nose. What's wrong with my nose? And and then she proceeded to talk about my fair skin. So I have some <laughs> European, Irish, German descent, and I have fair skin for people who can't see me. And she started to talk about the risks of cancer with people like me who have fair skin and started to talk about what I could do for that. <laughs> And she got back to my nose and asked me if I got punched. And I said, no, no, no. I had a deviated septum in my twenties. I had surgery for my deviated septum. And she said, oh, we know so much better now. So I kept like, I was so focused on my dang nose. <laughs> like what is wrong with my nose? And I said, I said, yeah, I had a bad allergy. So I'm talking to her about stuff. And then she started giving me advice about my allergies. I'm not exaggerating the story and I could probably go on and on, but I won't. So the point, I get up off the seat to leave and make my next appointment. And she's telling me that I have to have an extended cleaning. And you know, what's really interesting. I'll tell everybody here she didn't know that I used to work for a dentist. So I know a lot of the lingo and the things that if you have pockets in your gums, you might need an extended cleaning. I didn't have big pockets in my gums. I know that. But she never engaged me in a conversation about what I was doing, what I already know, and talked about my nose and my skin. And, and I want to highlight too, she was very kind she was sweet in her tone. She stayed at my level. I couldn't answer a whole lot of questions if she asked any because I had stuff in my mouth. Um, but I walked away thinking, gosh, I don't know what she thinks about my teeth, but she certainly worried about my nose and skin cancer that I found it very powerful, even though I'm kind of tongue in cheek chuckling about the experience. I literally drove away from the dentist's office thinking, I don't want to go back there, no matter how nice she was. And I literally started to worry about skin cancer. Mm. Well, I'm, I mean, I'm in my 50s. I know that I have fair skin and I know that, you know, I know all about skin cancer and using SPF cream in the summer. I, I just, it was just a really powerful exchange that to me was a lot about the opposite of the spirit. What are mm. your, what are your thoughts about the story or what questions do you have about it, how it fits in here? Yeah. I, I mean, for me, the first place that it fits in, and I really appreciate your emphasis on this is the idea that, you know, her manner, her tone of voice was all kind of what you would hope 
in mm-hmm. someone who is kind of a helping professional. And yet her inability to sort of focus on your agenda because you were there for your teeth really created like tremendous confusion and discomfort for you to the point where uh, again, and I, I'm, I'm just repeating what you said that you were never going to go back to this person. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's such a great example of somebody, a not meeting somebody where they're at and B kind of directing the agenda in such a way that is really off-putting to the person they're supposed to be having a conversation slash partnership with. Mm -hmm. And there were so many other things. It's just like jaw dropping in a way for me. Um, My mom had just passed away and she, Mm -hmm. she said, Oh, I see that you, you grind. And I said, yeah, uh, that's why I have a mouth guard, which was in my chart. And she mentioned that earlier. And I said, she said, well, so what are you doing to take care of yourself? You know, and she started to talk about biofeedback before she even paused. She didn't pause to let me answer the question. Had she paused, she would have heard that I was getting back into some meditation and yoga after my mom passed away. And she would have known some stuff, but she started talking about biofeedback. And the only question I was able to ask as I sat up was, why do you keep trying to push biofeedback on me? I'm really confused about why you're talking about that. So when we talk about watching how our manner and our style of questions or reflections land on people, she wasn't paying attention. She couldn't pay attention to my facial expression because she was talking to me with when she was behind the chair sometimes. But when I asked her the question, I finally gave her a little bit of feedback with my frustrating tone. Like, why are you talking to me about biofeedback? Mm-hmm. Um, and she answered the question. I was, it was really a hypothetical, sarcastic. <laughs> I'm really getting frustrated with you, doctor. <laughs> Could you please mm-hmm. stop? Uh, and she didn't even heed that warning. And, mm. um, just how important it is. Sometimes we don't see the subtlety of the reaction of the person when we're quote pushing or putting our agenda on the table. Uh, They might, and we may have talked about this in previous episodes that people may just acquiesce and say, sure. Okay. And I did that Mm -hmm. for quite a bit in this Mm -hmm. exchange Mm -hmm. until the end. I thought I I just can't anymore. And Mm. she let me know she's on the board of some cancer center. And I'm like, Oh boy, Mm. it's just not good. You know, I also think it's a really um, sort of intense example of the writing reflex Mm. because clearly she had very strong opinions, which Mm -hmm. she was felt free to share uh, about like what would fix the situation yeah. what would solve the problem and also what you should focus on that had nothing to do with what i was there for you, you know i think another point that would be important for me in this experience and i've experienced this in much lesser degrees cuz this was pretty this was pretty an unbelievable conversation it sounds unbelievable when i tell the story but every aspect of it's true hmm. um you know, I can exaggerate, but I'm not in this instance that if she did a little bit of it along with partnering or along with engaging me in a conversation or evoking or getting to know what I did or didn't do, um, I may not have walked away thinking I'm never coming back. And I walked out and I I may have mentioned I had been going to this office for quite some time and I adored the secretary and was walking out and made my appointment like a good patient. And um, she texted me trying to get me in for that intense cleaning. And I texted her back saying, no, 
I'm not going to make that appointment. And, and as a matter of fact, um, I'm going to cancel my appointment. I'm not coming back. And I didn't even have the, I wasn't courageous enough to do it in the office. And she said, can I ask you why? And I said, yeah, let's talk. So she was that wonderful of a front end staff that she picked up the phone to ask me why not. And I told her that I missed my other dentist and I didn't, I wasn't negative about this dentist. I just said, I really miss my other dentist and I know I don't need intense cleaning. And I've trusted this office for many years with my dental care. And, uh, you know, I just don't feel comfortable. Mm. And we know it was interesting. This is just a sidebar, nothing. The dentist that I loved was her niece. <laughs> She's uh. like, oh, that's my niece. She went off to teach dental school. So I'll tell her that you <laughs> miss her. <laughs> Mm-hmm. You know, I'm struck by the bit you added to the story because the receptionist was the one who was willing to be in a partnership. Absolutely. And yes. And really wanted to understand what your experience was and also attended to your cue. Mm-hmm. You're right. Good catch. And that's what I loved about going there. Not, it wasn't just her, it was her niece who was the dentist. It was, it was, I mean, who enjoys going to the dentist? I can't say I enjoyed going to the dentist at the same time. I didn't dread it because it felt like that. It felt like a partnership. It was a good relationship. If I didn't want to get an expensive something or other done, I just said, no, I'd rather go on vacation. Thanks. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, You know, you, you make me with the story, you make me think of one other thing as, as we kind of move forward in this conversation, which is the writing reflex. I think the thing to acknowledge, again, we normalized it kind of at the beginning and the person means well, yes, they really mean well. And again, motivational interviewing as a method of communication invites us to engage in a different way and and not just act on our meaning well. I'll also venture to throw out, and I don't know if you or anybody listening to this conversation might think I'm going a little too far by saying this, but I would venture to imagine that after that dentist told you everything that she told you because she thought that was what was right for you. I bet. And I'm just guessing here. She might've been left with the feeling of like, I did a really good job. And I know for some folks when they're learning motivational interviewing, when they intentionally hold back sort of either the education that they've been trained to give or the opinion that they have, when they intentionally hold that back to inquire about the other person's thought or reaction to evoke from that person, there's a discomfort because not only have they had the experience of believing that it was their job to do that, it also helped them to feel good about their work. And, and again, the, the thing we can kind of take away from the MI experience there is that we can feel good about inviting the other person to elaborate, suggest, offer a plan. Gosh, you know, Paul, I cringed when you was, were asking the listeners and me to consider what that doctor might've thought afterwards. Like, Oh, I feel really good about what I just did. I cringed because I don't know the answer, how the dentist felt after I left or after that encounter. And I put myself in her shoes and know that I've been there uh, in my times in the helping professions that I probably did that at times where I walked out, out of a session thinking, yes, that was great. They loved all the resources I gave them. And maybe like me, they walked out going, I'm never coming back. So I felt a little, oh, 
that was me. I did that before. Um, oh, and I lost my other thought about the MI stuff, but just being able to not do, oh, feeling good. Now the opposite happens when, when I bring the spirit to the table and partner with someone and evoke from them, I feel much better, even though there's, I mean, there's times they give me credit and they'll say, oh, that was a great idea. And I put it back in their lap and say, you came up with that idea. It was your idea. Or, you know, I'll I'll validate them and affirm them. Um, So, so sometimes I do get a pat on the back from people because they think I gave them the information or ideas and it's really them. I just reflected back Mm. what they said, if that makes sense. (laughs) It it makes complete sense. And it, I also think speaks to the power of a reflection because sometimes somebody can offer a suggestion or an idea and the fact that they do receive it back through the reflection or through a summary, it's almost like they're hearing it for the first time. Mm -hmm. I mean, they may be articulated. They dug deep into that well and they found it and they kind of put it out there. But the power of motivational interviewing is that they get to hear it again if we reflect it back to them, if we add it into a summary and and give it back to them. So, so I, I could totally understand the idea that they might think like, oh, well, you know, yeah, that was a great idea because you said it too. Right. Right. But you were simply reflecting what they said. Exactly. They, they, yeah. And especially if you use a complex reflection and you reframe it or add some meaning to it, uh, they think that you came up with it and it's really just mirroring back your hunch about what you heard them say. Mm. Yeah. Mm. You know, one other thing that I think sometimes people have at least reported struggling with is when they're working with somebody um, and exploring their ambivalence, helping strengthen their motivation and their ambivalence doesn't completely disappear. Mm -hmm. And uh, again, I I think some people struggle with like, well, am I really doing it? If, if all their ambivalence hasn't like, you know, vanished or melted away and I'd like to throw out, and and I'm curious as to what your take on this, Amy, is that it's not so much about making the ambivalence completely disappear, because sometimes that's not, uh, that's just not possible. It is, though, about engaging in a conversation and the, the balance shifts there, there in essence, is more motivation than there is existing ambivalence. So the person is still, they still have a little bit of ambivalence and it doesn't keep them from either making a commitment to make the change or coming up with a plan or actually even taking steps. And I'll add, I thought about my mom uh, and committing to doing something knowing they really don't want to do it. And I, the example that popped up into my mom, my mom, uh, God rest her soul said after she stopped smoking and she, she's a, uh, was older, older, born in the twenties. And, you know, when smoking was so normalized, she smoked three packs of cigarettes a day for a long time. And she started when she was a young teen. And when she stopped smoking in her sixties, she went through a really rough time and she, she would tell us it's, it's not funny, but it's kind of funny. She'd say, if I ever start smoking again, I am never going to stop. It, so it reminded me of this notion of sustaining a behavior change mm-hmm. and that my mom had made the behavior change. So in essence, one might think that her ambivalence about smoking or not smoking was resolved because she chose not to smoke. And to your point, it didn't really disappear. Mm-hmm. So, and I, I'm not certain, and I wonder what people think about that, 
Have you ever really overcome your ambivalence? Did it disappear? Did you come to a resolution that you made a decision, you made a choice, you're going to change your behavior and you're not going back and you're not ambivalent about it? I'm not sure. I'd have to think on that a bit about some Mm. things, but in your description made me think of my mom Mm. and she was, (laughs) her ambivalence still existed and she let us all know that. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a really great example of, and, and I really appreciate that you shared that, you know, she said, if I ever start smoking it, she knew it would be a trigger. She just knew she wasn't going to go back through the pain of stopping. Yes. Yes. She'd yeah. never do it. She goes, I don't care if I die of lung cancer. I'm not going to stop. And don't ever even try to tell me. <laughs> yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. yeah. You know, like ambivalence, which uh, again, it's, it's probably a very unique experience for anybody who experiences ambivalence to the degree that it diminishes or doesn't. Uh, the writing reflex probably, I, I know for myself, the writing reflex has not vanished or gone away. Yes. There are, you know, there are times when I'm engaging in a conversation and I can feel my desire to want to solve, rescue, or fix. And I am able for the most part, not always successfully, but I am able for the most part to suspend that but I do have to accept that, you know, that's probably something that's never going to go away for me. Yeah. You know, I, I don't know if I asked Bill Miller or if somebody asked Bill Miller, I just fantasize that I'm now friends with Bill Miller and I ask him all these questions. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I remember hearing him say that very thing about the writing reflex. Does it ever go away? Does it ever disappear? And he said, I think with time and practice, it just gets a little either quieter or easier to manage. I'm not, I'm paraphrasing. So Bill, if you're listening, you can write in and let us know what you really said. Something along the lines that it just either gets quieter or mm-hmm. you you learn to manage it a little differently mm-hmm. and don't respond to it when it pops mm-hmm. up. Like you said, you know, you get this gut feeling like you're mm-hmm. Jump out of your skin and tell somebody, hey, hey, I got this great gig that will help you. Mm. And, and pausing. To me, the the art and the practice of pausing has saved me so much from responding to that urge to push uh, or respond to my writing reflex. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Just taking a breath and noticing my stomach is tight or breathe. Don't say anything. Wait, let's wait to see what the person comes up with again. Practicing Mm -hmm. that, that pause, that moment of silence between utterances, we would say. Mm. It, It also makes me think that part of the way, and we've talked about this in a prior episode, but it also makes me think about the way I manage my writing reflex sometime is that I, in an MI congruent way, use the illicit provide illicit strategy mm-hmm. because, you know, if there is something I want to offer, if there is information I want to share, or if there is a suggestion that I want to make that strategy really makes it possible for me to do that with permission, of course, and to also affirm the person's autonomy. So I really appreciate what you shared that Bill said, because it, or at least that you're attributing to Bill Miller, um, (laughs) is that it, it really does help me to manage what is a normal impulse that can get in the way of the client actually moving toward change. Yeah. You know, and while if we could, I know we need to probably start to wrap up. And I was thinking of another Bill story, and it's around this notion of pushing and what we know about that. And I'll give you time to 
as I start to invite the story in about what Bill also said, or the story he tells, uh, what do you think about, or what do you know about what happens when we push people? Or I'll ask the listeners, what happens when you feel pushed by a caretaker, a loved one, a helping professional, um, you know, push a little bit or give you more than maybe what you're ready for. Bill tells the story about a guy he worked with who had alcohol problems. And in, in our diagnostic world, we would know that it was probably a severe alcohol problem and the probability. So we have this information because we're experts in our field to maybe predict that this person probably couldn't drink moderately or, you know, in a harm reduction kind of format for a way. And the guy told Bill that his goal was to reduce his drinking, that he didn't want to stop drinking. So Bill, um, I would imagine in his MI consistent way, engaged this guy in a relationship partnership and guided and, you know, helped him along the way. And eventually the long story made short, hopefully, is the guy comes back and says, I can't do it. I tried it. It didn't work. I have to stop drinking. So Bill refrained from the reflex of responding and with his knowledge, knowing diagnostically, prognostically, I'm getting very um, medically jargoned here that he resisted that and guided the person to what they wanted to do. And eventually the guy came and said, I can't do it. And the powerful point is the guy was engaged in the relationship because he was free to choose. And I love that notion of people feel most free to um, change when they know they're free not to. Yeah. I, I, I think that that is a, really powerful point to maybe conclude this conversation with um, that example is how, how, what a wonderful example of like the person being supported and then coming back to the conversation because there was a partnership and offering that, you know, I have figured out that I can't do this. And this is what I need to do. I mean, talk about powerful change talk. Okay. And to add one more um, morsel around the spirit that we talked about is I didn't get a sense. Now, I wasn't in, in the room and I wasn't with Bill. I heard the story that he didn't judge. He, it wasn't like he was sitting in the chair when the guy returned with the ha 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 gotcha, you know, like. And, and I think some people think, oh, I'll just use MI until I get to that point, um, that it wasn't this. He truly was guiding the person, believing that this guy would figure it out, not the, hmm, I don't know, I think you'll be coming back and we'll mm. be having a different conversation. I didn't get that sense. And, mm. you know, we talk about MI is not used to trick people. And I think I mm -hmm. wanted to highlight that to not give this exciting <laughs> uh, nuance that, oh, we could just guide them and eventually they'll come back to what we think is right. Not mm. necessarily. <laughs> I worked with a guy on the opposite way that actually chose, he tried to not drink. And when he came forward after months and months and months of working with him, he decided he didn't want to do it. He didn't want to stop drinking. Mm. And that was tough in a helping profession, like navigating that. Did I fail him or didn't I fail him? He made his choice and mm -hmm. I had to sleep well with that. It was his choice. It's not mine. Mm -hmm. You honored his autonomy. Yeah. And sometimes people make choices that we don't know what's best for them, even mm -hmm. though we think what seems best for them. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't feel maybe good to us because we care and we want something different for the person. Yeah. But I really love that notion and probably worth repeating that people feel free to 
change when they know they're free not to. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks for restating that. And I really, uh, I really am left with a lot to think about in terms of this particular conversation. I always leave our conversations with more depth and understanding, and I hope others do as well. Thanks so much for your wonderful conversations, Paul. A pleasure. Thanks so much, Amy. (laughs) Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to episode 10 of Lions and Tigers and Bears MI. Join us for episode 11, where Amy and Paul dive into verifiability and discuss the question, how do I know I'm doing MI? Cassette Podcast Network. This podcast has been brought to you by the Cassatt Podcast Network, located within the Center for the Application of Substance Abuse Technologies at the University of Nevada, Reno. For more podcasts, information, and resources, visit cassatt.org.